Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, Elvis is very much in the building as I speak to the cast and crew of the new Elvis movie, including the man playing Elvis, Austin Butler, and the great director, Baz Luhrmann, as well as some of the other cast members. Mark Ryle will be here with all the week's new releases as well as all that. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm right here on Newstalk. Good weekend to you all. Hope the world and life and the universe is treating you well. I start with a cinema story this week. Uh, I took my eldest fellow for his birthday party to Doctor Strange into the Multiverse of Madness. That came out about four weeks ago. Mark Ryle hated it, gave it an awful review I hadn't seen at the time. Before we get to that, though, I took seven children to the cinema, seven, nine and ten year olds. I handled it pretty well, I think, because it was kind of stressful. They all behaved themselves. I had to tell them to be quiet once or twice because there was lots of other people in the cinema. But I have to say the other people in the cinema were very understanding about it. You know, you, you hear a lot about people's nerves have been frayed and stuff since the pandemic and all in these social situations. But I was impressed with my fellow cinema goers who uh, looked fondly upon the seven children and the middle-aged man uh, and didn't give out when they made noises regularly throughout the movie. Like, don't open that door! So, thank you, fellow cinema goers. Now, the movie itself, right? Mark Ryle tore it apart and my child and his pals all enjoyed it. And I suppose in a way, maybe I enjoyed watching it with them. But it was awful in another way. It really was the the new Doctor Strange movie. And what I kept thinking about was Martin Scorsese two years ago or a year ago when he got into all that trouble for saying that these Marvel movies weren't films. They were theme park rides. And that's the sense I really had watching the new Doctor Strange movie. I mean, so little of it actually takes place in the confines of what we understand the movie to be, like a human drama with two people or a group of people walking down a street or talking in an apartment or this all takes place against, you know, blue screens and green screens and screen upon screen and digital enhancement. And I love superhero movies, but we are reaching peak dross with stuff like this. Like Martin Scorsese was onto something. I'm not sure if Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness is a film as we've traditionally understood it. Now in TV, I was watching this. The person who killed mom's witness. Mm-hmm. Do you represent them? Everyone deserves a defense, Haley. But would you defend them, knowing what they did? It's it's more complicated than just yes or no, Haley. Why? Because you know why. We've talked about this. No, I know what you tell me about your dad and about innocent until proven guilty, but what about you? Okay, where do you draw the line? Do you have a line? Yes, I have a line. I, for example, I don't represent people who hurt kids, all right? That's good, I guess. Come on, Haley. Now, that is a clip from a show that has been on Netflix since May, which I finally got around to because it kept popping up and it's 
been very popular. It's been number one in all sorts of territories, including Ireland. It's called The Lincoln Lawyer. And it's based on a Michael Connolly book, The Brass Verdict, I believe it is. And in it, you have a lawyer, obviously enough, who likes to drive Lincolns, as in the car. And he's played by the Mexican actor Manuel Garcia Ruffalo. And he's a defense attorney who's been out of the game for a while because he had an accident on a surfboard, actually. And he got addicted to oxycodone, left the stage for a while. But he's pulled back into it when a prosecutor that he was friendly with leaves his entire practice to him just 10 days before he's murdered. And so this guy, Mickey, has to take on all his cases. And one of them in particular, which is a very bloody one, one of his clients that he takes on is a guy called Trevor Elliott, who's a kind of tech millionaire who's on trial for murdering his wife and her lover. And this is kind of nonsense but very enjoyable nonsense. Uh, most weeks you have Mickey having to finish a case or having to try a particular case, as well as this overarching Trevor Elliott case. His life is complicated by the fact that he works in his office with his second ex-wife. She's now marrying a private investigator that he's great friends with, and he's still in love with his first wife, with whom he shares a daughter with, who you heard him talking to there, his daughter. And you heard that very sincere, earnest conversation they were having. There's a lot of that stuff in it. This is kind of legal courtroom, cheesy drama, but I kind of love it. Now, regular listeners to the show will know I have a soft spot for this kind of stuff. Number one exhibit being Blue Bloods on Sky Atlantic, which is nonsense as well about a group of police and a police family. And this has elements of that, but it's very watchable TV. It's good courtroom drama stuff. So don't email me saying this is nonsense because I know it's nonsense, but it's entertaining nonsense. So that's The Lincoln Lawyer on Netflix, uh, now available to stream 10 episodes, very watchable TV. Now, Talking of nonsense, uh, <laughs> Rowan Atkinson is back in Man vs. B, which lands on Netflix this week. And in it, he plays a house sitter who goes to this very fancy house. He's trying to impress his daughter. Again, he's divorced and he's trying to see more of his daughter and be a good dad. And he gets a job because it appears he hasn't previously had one. And he... Uh, goes to this very fancy house. He has to house sit it. And the house is full of like Kaczynski's and all sorts of expensive artworks and grand pianos and beautiful furnishings. And there is a bee. Yes, that's right. A bee, albeit a very digitized one in this, who won't leave the house. And through a series of very Mr. Bean-like escapades, he tries to kill the bee and does untold damage to the house. Uh, I watched this with my nine-year-old and six-year-old, and they enjoyed it a lot. And if you're into the Mr. Bean shtick, this is kind of Mr. Bean. He's not using that ridiculous voice. He's a proper character in this, but it's very Mr. Bean-esque. I mean, it's, it's, it's fine for what it is, for slapstick, farcical stuff. It's grand. I mean, I just wonder about Rowan Atkinson's motivations. You know, this type of stuff, Johnny English and Mr. Bean. I, I know people love that stuff, but I don't know. Is he not tired of it? Like, this is the man who was in Not the Nine O'Clock News and Blackadder, you know? Uh, and now he's making this kind of stuff. 
I don't know. I sound kind of cranky this week. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't mean to be. I'm a lover of life and movies and TV shows. I just happen to see kind of a few dodgy things this week. So bear with me. So Man vs. B, I'm not saying it's dodgy, but it's just, you know, it's Mr. Bean by a different name. Go figure. Now, let's do Elvis. Get a haircut, buttercup! In that moment, I watched that skinny boy transform into a superhero. I wish to promote you, Mr. Presley. Are you ready to fly? I'm ready. Ready to fly. Tomorrow, all of America will be talking about Elvis Presley. I can't move, I can't sing. Some people want to put me in jail. The world's moving. They might put me in jail for walking across the street, but you're a famous white boy. Yes, now that is a clip of the much-talked-about new biopic, Elvis, simply called Elvis, which is directed by Baz Luhrmann. And in this telling or retelling of the Elvis story, it's a couple of things. First of all, it's a straight up biopic in some ways in that it tells the arc of Elvis's life from poor kid who lost his twin brother at birth, who is besotted by African-American music. And then this horrific talent that he had as a performer takes hold of him and he becomes this huge star and then it kind of goes slightly south that's all in there but it's told through the prism of his relationship with colonel tom parker as played by tom hanks i should say elvis is played by austin butler a a youngish actor who was in once upon a time in hollywood and the dead don't die he plays elvis and tom parker is played by tom hanks as i say and it is about their very complex relationship If you don't know, Colonel Tom Parker was the man who brought Elvis to the world uh, and is often seen as the villain because, you know, depending on who you listen to, he was a pretty nefarious influence on Elvis. There's, There's different theories about that. In this movie, you know, you see him being, you know, out for himself, but maybe having some regard for Elvis as well. So that's all in there. But as I say, it's directed by Baz Luhrmann. So the music is great. It looks fantastic. There are some great visual flourishes to it. I really enjoyed this, I have to say. I like a good musical biopic, as I've told you many times. And uh, this is a really good one. So listen, Baz Luhrmann, he who gave us Romeo and Juliet, Moulin Rouge, you know, he's a theatrical filmmaker. He did The Great Gatsby about eight years ago, 10 years ago. So he was probably the right man to do an all singing, all dancing Elvis biopic. Uh, And I got to talk to him and uh, we ended up talking about Billy Joel and Colonel Tom Parker at one stage. Take a listen to this. Hi, Baz. How are you? I've been a great admirer for a long time. So it's lovely to talk to you. Thanks for chatting Uh, to me. It's very cool, man. I'm really happy to talk to you. Good. Listen, you know, I thought there was a certain symmetry in this. You are a maker of great musical epics and Elvis Presley, I think it's generally agreed, is the true pioneer of rock and roll. Uh, Was this gestating with you for a long time? Like, was it something you've carried around in your head for years? Well, like he's been in my life for a long time. I mean, I, um, 
I kind of knew him through the movies when we had our little picture house, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he was big when I was doing like ballroom dancing in, in the 70s. But then he went away and I was into Bowie and people like that, you know. Yes. But um, I think it's more that I, I always thought the way Shakespeare would take a historical figure and make a bigger idea, you know, like Amadeus. Mm-hmm. You'd learn a lot about Mozart, but you learn more about jealousy, you know. And I was always looking for how could I use Elvis like that? You know, I mean, I hate saying use Elvis like that, but how could his how could his life and his legacy be used to express a larger idea? And it was only when I when you know we suddenly surrounded by these kind of snowmen in our mm-hmm. life that came along some years ago, you know, guys that like to sort of sell you anything. Yes. As long as it made a buck, mm. you know, the singularity of snowmen is they don't have political alliance or they don't particularly, all they really care about is there's only them mm. you know, and yeah. what they can get out of it. And when you put the snowman next to the showman, even though, the, even though there was a genuine and complex relationship there, I mean, that's an operatic story. You know, yeah. like I'm, I'm from opera and to me it's the great American tragic opera. Wow, yeah, it's a great way of putting it. You know, the first time I really heard uh, Colonel Tom, Tom Parker discussed was actually in a Billy Joel interview. Really? And he was saying how he couldn't stomach him. Now, Billy Joel had his own issues with management and was taken to the cleaners, mm. but he clearly hated Tom Parker. And I always had it in my head as well that, you know, I should hate Tom Parker. You were keen to show nuance to him, that maybe he was a prisoner of what he was coming from himself, right? Like, the, he's not yeah, just I- all bad. Gee, I want to stop and talk about the Billy Joel interview because I thought I knew everything. <laughs> I never heard that. Wow. Yeah. I have to, when I see Billy, I have to ask him all about that. Um, yeah, I mean, nuanced meaning that he gets to, in a morphine dream, argue his point of view in the court of public opinion. Mm. And he's going to tell you, right, hey, so when Elvis dies... And the first call I make is print more records. You all think I'm a bad guy, right? Mm. But don't you want the records? Like, you know, like when Michael Jackson (laughs) died, we all rushed down and went like, oh, I need to get, what if there were no records? I mean, what I mean is I'm not saying Parker's good or bad. I'm having Parker have a go at arguing, right? Like, isn't the tragedy Elvis born in this one, one of the white houses in this black community who synthesizes black and white music, who has an incredible spiritual quality that makes people lose their minds, mm-hmm. meets the world's greatest, you know, Zedla roll up, roll up, <laughs> you know, yeah. carnival seller. And suddenly they explode to a level they couldn't possibly have imagined. Mm. And you know, then they rise, they fall, and, you know, Elvis is then taken away from black music and put in a sort of Hollywood bubble, and then Elvis finds himself again, and then he gets caught in a trap in Vegas. I mean, that is the stuff of tragic operas. It certainly is. It certainly is. Let me ask you just finally a a big picture thing. Here I am talking to the master of epics, as I described it, and this is going to get people back into the cinema, hopefully. That's my... That is my singular, I make theatrical films. Mm. And my whole thing is 
to get people into. It's called the theater. Yes. I'll, yes. Watch, I'll watch a streaming show on an iPhone cuddled up too, but that's like takeout. I'm trying to serve a banquet out there, you know? Well, that's why I was going to ask you, are you, are you worried? Are you perplexed, particularly since COVID that so many people have turned to watching things on phones and computers? I'm not worried. No. I mean, I, I do it myself. You know, mm-hmm. when television came along, everyone said cinema's dead. Well, guess yeah. what happened? The movies <laughs> bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Cinemascope was invented. Actually, I think picture houses will become more wonderful. Like, I think the only way to do it is like, we got into this sort of cineplex where it was like, and they weren't always that good. And I think movie houses now have to like added experience, mm-hmm. be a club member, serve food, um, get special swag bags of stuff, like make it like going to the theater, mm-hmm. make it theatrical, make yeah. it special, make it worth getting out, risking whatever, whether it's COVID this week or, you know, or the, or the cost of parking. The next thing. Yeah. yeah. Like people want to be in rooms with strangers and commune over a story because they, you're not lonely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, that's a very sanguine place to end. Lovely to talk to you, Baz, and continued <laughs> success. Lovely to talk to you, man, and thanks. Cheers. Yeah, get people into the theatre. Good man. Thank you. Baz Lorman there talking to me about getting people back into the cinema and of course his Elvis biopic which we are talking about this week which is in cinemas from this Friday and I really liked it and uh, he was quite taken by the Billy Joel thing but that's true Billy Joel was on Jonathan Ross and he really had no time for Colonel Tom Parker uh Billy Joel had his own management issues, though he was famously taken to the cleaners by his brother-in-law. So that'll leave you a bit sour, uh, as you can imagine. So listen, Elvis himself is played by the young actor Austin Butler, as I mentioned, and he does a brilliant job in it. He really does. And he sings about half of the material in it. And by God, the boy can sing. And what he does so well in this is, you know, Elvis getting on stage, and Bruce Springsteen has said this, was was a moment in time like no other. It changed so many people's lives. It changed the world. And those scenes where Austin Butler is playing that moment in Elvis's life is just absolutely remarkable. So anyway, I had a chat with Austin Butler about playing Elvis. You were absolutely fantastic in the film. And I just wonder one of those things, you know, did you spend half your life before this people going, you know, you could really play Elvis someday? Because when I was watching you on screen, I know it's acting and all, but I thought I, I forgot it was you and I forgot you were Elvis. Like it was incredible. Wow, that's a huge compliment. Thank you. And have people been suggesting that all your life? Not really. I, I, uh, it wasn't until, and this was the, this was a surreal part about it. It wasn't until the months before I heard Baz was making the film. The month before I had two moments where somebody very close to me said, uh, in one moment I was, uh, we were driving to look at Christmas lights and I was singing an Elvis Christmas song and they sort of like looked at me uh, almost in a moment of revelation and they reached over and said, you got to play Elvis. Blue Christmas, was it? Yeah, Blue Christmas. Yeah, so, th- so there was that moment, and then there's that other moment where I was playing the piano at home, and they said, yeah, I'm serious, you got to figure out how you can get the rights and play Elvis. And uh, But both those times, I just kind of brushed it off because I thought, it's such a long shot. Yeah. And then I got the call from Baz. So it, it was it, it, the surreal part was that it happened right in that last month before the Baz uh, information. 
Okay. And did you go deep into Elvis research? Like, did you surround yourself with the music? Did you read books? Did you do a lot of that stuff? I, I yeah, I did everything. I, I, I didn't live any other life for two years. Wow. Really. And we had a year and a half before we started shooting. And um, so the first the first chunk of time was really absorbing everything because there's such an immense amount of images and and recordings and and yeah. footage out there and he's everywhere so many, so many people have written books on his life so i i i went out and i bought every book that somebody had written about his life and i read every single one well wow. i watched everything and i listened to everything and I, I listened to his entire catalog of music and and it wasn't just that i did those things once that was all i did all day long so i would i'd find something that felt like a key and then I would obsess about it and I would listen over and over and over. And I would, um, I'd record myself and watch it back or record my voice and listen back. And, uh, it just, it, it, it was really, I just allowed myself to surrender to, uh, to the obsession. You know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it paid off. Uh, Bono, the lead singer you two said this great thing yeah. once that Elvis knew guilt like a twin brother. Uh, I always thought was a great phrase. And I'm wondering in your research, because that's mentioned a bit in the movie, Jesse, yeah. I believe his name was, that, that was that a big motivating factor for him, do you think? Or for truly, you and your performance of it? Yeah, I truly believe so. I, I, I think even if it was on an unconscious level, mm. when you think about the first human interaction, the first time that you touch another human skin and you experience mm. oxytocin and dopamine, it's happening in his mother's womb with his twin brother. And off, and this, this is another little Easter egg. His mother, Gladys, she loved to do this thing called buck dancing. She'd go to church and she'd dance for eight hours. And it was this wild uh, spiritual dancing that they would do. And so there's a lot of theories about the fact that music, he's hearing through the belly. Yeah. And he's, he's sloshing around in her womb and he's probably making the most skin-to-skin -skin contact for the first time with his twin brother and experiencing oxytocin and dopamine and stuff while he's hearing music. Mm. So, so there's, there's that quality, which we don't know, but you know, it, it adds into the quality of it being in his bones. Mm -hmm. um, but, but then the fact that Jesse is born first and he's still born. Yeah. And Gladys and Vernon are experiencing the most grief that they've ever felt in their lives because their baby boy has just died. And suddenly she starts going into labor again and mm -hmm. here comes Elvis. So from the moment that he comes into this world in his mother's eyes, he's a miracle. Yeah. And he's also, she instills in him this feeling of needing to live the life for the both of them. Yeah. And, uh, and what also goes with that is like the Bono quote is that, you know, I did a lot of research on twinless twins and there's some twinless twins I didn't know. Liberace is a twinless twin. Wow, uh, I didn't know that either. But yeah. there's this thing, survivor's guilt in that situation yeah. that, that really affects you psychologically. And also the, the, the effect of having your other half be absent your entire life. Yeah. So there's this void inside. So, the, so I think that a lot of that, even on a very unconscious level, created that searching quality in Elvis the feeling of, of, of drive and also of constantly searching and, and spiritual yearning as well, yeah. I think, from a very young age. Well, look, you went very deep in your research and it paid off on screen because you're terrific and it. Lovely to talk Thank to you, Austin. So much, Thanks a lot. To talk to you.
Austin Butler there talking to me about his role as Elvis in the new biopic of Elvis called Elvis. Now, more Elvis. Uh, you can never have enough Elvis. More Elvis after the break. And uh, I'm going to be talking to the actress Olivia de Jong, who played Priscilla Presley. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. We're talking a lot about Elvis this week because I got to talk to Baz Luhrmann and the cast of Elvis, the new biopic, which is in cinemas this Friday, the 24th of June. Now, Priscilla Presley, you know, maybe one of the most famous wives of anyone ever, uh, is played really well in this by the actress Olivia de Jong. Olivia can currently be seen or recently in The Staircase and she is brilliant as Priscilla, uh, as that tough, loving woman who was able to, it seems, call Elvis out even though she was deeply, deeply in love with him. Uh, Have a listen to this. Hi, how are you? I love your accent. (laughs) We're off to a great start because I'm about to tell you that I loved you in the movie. So mutual appreciation society. Thank you so much. You know, she's one of the most iconic wives in the history of pop culture, in a way, Elvis and Priscilla. Like when you got the script, I know you're an actress, so, you you know, you want to do these things. But had you any reservations about playing such a famous woman and also a woman who was still alive? Um, absolutely. I mean, I think it was kind of terrifying in, 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 some, in some way, but it also was obviously such a huge opportunity that I, I knew it was going to be a challenge. And mm. um, I knew, uh, you know, what was behind the film. And it was a lot of love for uh, Elvis and his legacy and a huge respect for his music. Um, and it was obviously just an opportunity that I didn't feel like I could uh, that I could turn down. Um, sure. But of course, I think there's a lot of trepidation around yeah. playing somebody who is still um, alive. And talking of that, I gather you subsequently met her, and we'll get to that in a second, but were you keen not to before you did it? Yeah, I think so. It was a bit of it was a bit of both. I think it was tricky with COVID, you know, obviously sure. trying to get the everything to to to, to come together. Um, but I in in hindsight, I'm glad that we didn't actually meet beforehand because I think it would have I think it would have got in my head and sort of wigged me out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can yeah. understand. Yeah. And so I've read and, you know, these things can't always be believed, as you well know, but you were with her at a premiere and she was holding your hand by the end of it and you were both yeah. in floods of tears. Yeah. That's true, of, is it? Yeah. At the end of uh, uh, the premiere in Cannes, we, mm. we, we were seated next to each other, which I wasn't aware of. And yeah, got very emotional at the end. So it was um, definitely like a once in a lifetime uh, uh opportunity and and moment and it was very very special i can imagine i can imagine and it's been adored it can the applause seemed to go on and on i'm sure that's nice and a bit strange when you're sitting in a theater where people have just been watching you and they clap for 10 minutes totally i mean it just keeps going (laughs) you know but i mean you know we've been on this film for so long now so i think to to feel that that genuine um applause and and love for the film as much as we loved it then you know it's, it's a very very special feeling In terms of Elvis and Priscilla, uh, what comes across in the movie is that she loved him all her life, despite and and still does, I guess, despite what might have happened and the ebbs and flows of of that relationship. Is that your sense of it, that she was always in love with him? I mean, I think, you know, you you spent it. I feel like a love like that doesn't necessarily go away. I think there's a difference between in love and just loving somebody genuinely. And I feel Mm. like when you care for someone that deeply and the way that she has continued to protect his name and his legacy, 
um, well, well, well after his death. I think mm. it's, it is such a testament for the love that she had um, and she has for him and respect that, that she has for him as well. I think as well, she is one of the only people who really understood how much that, that Elvis meant to the people and how important that it was to, 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 to main, maintain that legacy well after his, mm. his death. Yeah, she loves or loved his legacy as well and clearly wanted yeah. to protect it. You know, Austin, this is an interview about you, but there was times that I was watching him and I, it was like he was Elvis. I mean, the transformation, it must have been strange looking across this guy. I know it's acting, so that's mm. what you guys no, do. No. He seemed to be just like Elvis the whole Abs- time. I mean, absolutely. Um, he, yeah, he he's such a dedicated actor and he really threw himself into that role and to... I remember my first day on set as, as Priscilla was actually watching the 68 special, which is um, the leather, mm. you know, yes. the, the very inf- infamous leather <laughs> outfit that he had on. And I was sitting next to Luke Bracey at the time and it was just so uncanny, but it was so, um, it was a really, it was a magical moment because we were in the middle of, um, still in the middle of COVID. Yeah. So I think like the state of the world was so chaotic, but you know, the past and the present was sort of coming together through, through Austin and through Baz. And mm-hmm. it was, it was like where you could, everybody in the room was present for the first time in a long time. So it was, yeah, very, very special. And, and I was totally blown away by him. Mm-hmm. And finally, then it seems everyone's singing in this movie. My memory serves, you don't sing at all. Are, are you no. able to sing or did you have I the wish. blues that you weren't I, able to sing? I wish. I mean, I think for sure, watching the way that Austin threw himself into that, the dance and singing aspect, I think as an, as an actor, that would be such a fantastic um, and fine opportunity to have. But no, I think we did actually, that there's that little brief dance number that we have with Oh yes, and I think in the booth we did like some terrible, some terrible (laughs) renditions of a few lines in there just to sort of um, fill out. But no, I mean, I can, you know, sure, I can hold a tune. So. <laughs> I'm sure you can. Well, you can certainly hold an acting role. Uh, oh, it was thank lovely you. to talk to you and lovely to thank meet you. Thank you so much. Olivia de Young there talking to me about her role as Priscilla Presley in the new biopic of Elvis simply called Elvis. Now, finally, uh, I had a fascinating chat with Yola, the soul and R&B singer, who's making her acting debut in this. You may know Yola. She had a very radio-friendly hit of sorts, cover version of Elton John's Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. Uh, I didn't know a huge amount about her music, I have to say, but anything I heard before, I did really like. I listened to some more and she's fantastic. Grammy nominated. Anyway, she played sister, or she plays Sister Rosetta Tharp in this. Now, Sister Rosetta Tharp is one of these pioneers of rock and roll, really, rhythm and blues. She was one of the first women to kind of play an electric guitar and she was hugely influential on all sorts of people not least of all Elvis as we see in this movie so I got to talk to Yola about playing Sister Rosetta Tharp. Sister Rosetta Tharp you know a, a, an unsung pioneer of rock and roll in some ways and I was reading all about her this morning and I was kind of like going how did I not know more about this person who was so instrumental who you know, I might be listening to some of the music I listen to now without her. Had you been aware of her as a musician, just how important she was, or did you get the script and go, wow? I grew up with her. Um, ah, okay. And I never wanted, I always felt like people pussyfooted around the concept that she invented rock and roll because it was like, we, how can we not know so much about a person and them actually invent the thing that we now all take for granted, you know? But she did. She was the first person to distort the guitar 
Um, yeah. She was the first person to bend a string. You think of all the solos where you see people bending strings. She was number one on that situation. And wow. so the idea of the kind of the shred that we know and the distortion, all of that is her invention. Without her, we don't have rock and roll full stop. And then she showcases and discovers people. So without mm-hmm. her, we don't have Little Richard. Like a buttoned up guy doesn't go and find a black drag act in Alabama. I'll tell you that right now. And so <laughs> in the 50s, nah, mate. It's got to yeah. be, she was a queer black woman. And so her queerness meant that she saw him and his brilliance for everything that it is. And so we get Prince, we get Prince because we get him. Mm. We get all of the other like permutations of rock and roll and all of that campness that you see in rock and roll. Like all of this comes from this seed. Wow. It's fascinating. And, you know, you describe her, which she was a queer black woman. Is that part of the lack of recognition? Unfortunately, do you think I don't want to get all heavy? But at the same time, you're right. It's, but it's segregation. So Mm -hmm. like the movie set in segregation America, because before a certain time that's how it was and so like the reason why we don't have all of this information is because of the the situation of segregation yeah and so that then when when we're trying to remedy that you know (laughs) it's like where people get missed out and she was so early because she was inventing the gosh darn thing yeah (laughs) so she got missed out of the situation and it's and because she's a woman as well as of color, you know, it's the woman aspect that people don't always mentally associate sure. with um, invention and with like heroicness, mm. you know, but she was both of those things. But, yeah. you know, sometimes being a lady can get in the way of that narrative. Yeah, unfortunately. And tell me this. I was I was trying to. Just double check. I got something wrong in an interview last week and I was very embarrassed. You've never acted before. Is that right? No, never. No. Great. So I, I, I checked. <laughs> I, well, I was going to say, I spent about 20 minutes making sure I had that right. And now I've just fact checked it with you. But was there any trepidation? You know, you're a very successful musician. You know, there are lots of bad, brilliant musicians who've done bad acting. Now, you did a great job, but had you any trepidation? Um, that's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine just earlier today on radio and he goes, you've always had a dramatic inclination. I'm like, (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Like I don't get into anything that I don't think I can, I can't nail. And, uh, like if I like, and so that was always the approach. I was like, I'm going to audition. And if they see something, hopefully that's enough. Yeah. If it doesn't work out, I'm sure it won't be me flagging it. <laughs> I'm sure they'll let me fully know if I'm not nailing it. Yeah, they don't uh, keep I'm, those things to themselves in Hollywood. They really don't, babes. And so, although sometimes, you know, people with less taste, they do. And you see dreadful, like, performances. Let's not get into that. Yeah, but Baz and Catherine ain't those people. And no. so um, I felt like I was in really safe taste hands. Like, I grew up with that with their Romeo and Juliet. You know, mm. and so I knew that taste was like mwah, the trust level was nine thousand, and so I wasn't worried that they were going to let me stick. Yeah, well, you, you did a fantastic job. And just in closing, I I didn't know a huge amount about your music, but I was I was listening to it all week, and it's it's fantastic. So I'm thank giving you two you. compliments. You're a great musician, and based on this, you're a great actress as well. So thanks for talking. Thank to very me. much. I appreciate it.
the singer Yola there talking to me about playing Sister Rosetta Tharp in the new biopic of Elvis, simply called Elvis. So that's a lot of Elvis this week. I hope you don't mind, but the movie is great. And you know, I've been an Elvis fan since I was a kid. My mother, who listens all the time, is one of the world's biggest Elvis fans. And uh, I grew up with Elvis and I knew the story of Elvis's life very well, or, or certainly one telling of it. So I loved it, this movie, I have to say. Uh, it's, it's getting mixed reviews from the critics. But this critic, if, if I can call myself that, uh, is given a, a meaty four stars. Now, there are other new releases and Mark Ryle will be reviewing those after the break. Now, you're welcome back to Screen Time for the final part of the show. And we're late getting to the week and every week's main attraction, Mark Ryle with the new releases, because we had a lot of Elvis to get through, as Colonel Tom Parker probably said at one point in his career. But there are other movies out this week, most notably a new horror thriller kind of thing called The Black Phone, starring Ethan Hawke, and also a very unusual documentary called Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest. More of that and on. Mark Ryle, as I say, joins me now. Hello, Mark. How are you? Hey, John. Mixed bag. <laughs> a mixed bag, yeah. Well, I've only seen one of these, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Elvis was great, but I know music biopics and Baz Luhrmann aren't your thing, so <laughs> I'll just move on, right? Yeah. Anyway, let's yeah. Uh, let's get to it. Yeah. Okay. So look, the black phone, I didn't get to, I have to say though, you know, and this is, you can't base a movie on this, but hats off to them for their posters. Cause yeah. I really like the main image of this very scary guy in some kind of mask. It's a, it's a, it's a striking image. Mm. Yeah. Okay. See you next week. <laughs> okay. Cheers. Thanks. <laughs> okay. So the oh, black phone, which has this uh, scary picture to accompany it is about what exactly it's it's based on a short story by joe hill who some listeners might be aware is stephen king's son um and this is what scott derrickson did instead of directing dr strange 2 so he he dodged a bullet there um and besides directing dr strange, sorry by dr strange 2 do we mean dr strange the one that the was out a couple of weeks ago that was well, that was yeah well, listen, yeah. I'm sorry to dovetail into this, but our, our listeners have heard me say this is the start of the show. I went to see it on Sunday uh-huh. for my eldest lad's birthday, and I'm pretty much in utter agreement with you, just to say. <laughs> Thanks. And, and never, what, that doesn't usually happen. No, I know. But what, what I was more reminded of, and I'm repeating myself now, is that it's not that I hated it completely. I mean, I could see my kid and his pals laughing and getting scared. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's that's really what what I suppose that's the that's the main thing, isn't it? But, but here's the thing that I kept thinking about. Remember Martin Scorsese last year got into a whole world of pain for yeah. saying movies are becoming like theme rides. Those it's days. not cinema. Yeah, well, I kind of had that feeling. I mean, at, at any point, was Benedict Cumberbatch actually outside acting anywhere? Or was the whole thing on a green screen looking yeah. at tennis balls and stuff? Yeah. So I, yeah. I, I kind of, albeit four weeks later, I'm in complete agreement with you, more it's, or less. It was just product. That's yeah. all it was. Yeah. Anyway. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so he did, yeah. So Scott Derrickson directed the first Doctor Strange, and then he went off and did this, and it's, it's, I'm very glad that he did. Um, he, he also directed uh, the horror Sinister back in 2012, and this reunites him with uh, Sinister's writer, C. Robert Cargill, and also its star, Ethan Hawke. Um, it's set in 1978 in a small town in Denver, Colorado, 
where a serial killer called The Grabber has been kidnapping teenage boys in a black van. Um, Five teens have disappeared so far, never to be seen again. And The Grabber's latest victim is Finney, who's played here by newcomer Mason Thames. And once Finney has been kidnapped, he's kept in a soundproof basement with nothing in it apart from a grubby mattress and a disconnected uh, telephone. And then things start take a a supernatural turn when the phone starts ringing and Finney starts getting calls from beyond the grave with advice on how to escape. I won't go into any more than that because even though it's in the trailer, I really don't want to go into start going into spoiler territory no sure absolutely and i think we get a sense of it from that and it's not a spoiler though to say that ethan hawk plays the grabber yeah that yeah he is he he is he's definitely playing against type yeah um, i don't think he, like he he's he as far as i'm aware i think he's avoided playing villains most yeah. throughout his yeah. career yeah, um, he he is very very creepy and he's unsettling. But I think it could it could have been even more so. It, the part is a bit thin and it needed to be fleshed out a bit. And I think that definitely the costume and the character design is doing a lot of the heavy lifting as well. And that creepy mask that's that's just a stroke of genius. That was that was designed by um, uh, the maestro of horror makeup, Tom Savini. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, I suppose we should like it's it's it is. Is it a for me? I think it's more of a thriller than it is a horror, even though it's quite there are a couple of supernatural scares, but they're quite few and far between. And I think most of the threat and the dread here is of the the corporeal variety rather than the supernatural. Okay, Um, and it is, yes, it is dark because it's a movie about a a middle aged serial killer killer kidnapping and killing teenagers. So, but it, it, to be honest. It sounds darker than it is, and and it never really goes there, if you like. And okay. There's a. I felt quite a, a lack of of real threat and urgency in the situation that this kid is in, um, and uh, in fact, a lot a lot of his. I think his home situation. He's got an abusive alcoholic father, and he's bullied at school. I think that is more almost as upsetting if as the this predicament that he he now finds himself in. Yeah, and Ethan Hawke, like in the bits I've seen of it, the clips. He he was quite unnerving, though, as the guy in the mask. Is he yeah. good doing that, or is it just the mask, as you say, is doing it all the work? I like I said that the, the costume design and the character design is is doing yeah. is doing ninety percent of it. Okay. and I, it, he's presented as a sort of a there's no backstory, which is fine. I don't need that, but I kind of there is really no motivation. Bar he's just there. Okay, <laughs> if okay. that makes any sense. Yeah, no, no, no. I hear you. I hear you. Um, yeah, and they were, yeah, the 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 director Scott Derrickson and the, the scriptwriter Cargo, they they never really put the boot in, and it kind of skirts around the edges of a very very dark premise, but it never really fully commits. Okay. Um, there there is a couple of really really good tense scenes where the kid is using the information that he's being fed to try and escape the basement, but um, at a certain point everything starts to get a bit repetitive. I think after maybe the second or third phone call that he gets from beyond the grave, it does start to resemble watching somebody try to get out of one of those uh, escape room experience things. Okay. It was funny. You were saying Ethan Hawke has never played a villain before, but I was going to say, you know, that movie Waking Life, now he's only in it briefly, but that is a crime against 
pretentiousness. So he, <laughs> technically, he has played a villain, but oh my but that's god, a, yeah, a different way of putting it. Okay, uh, so so basically, you know, for such a dark idea, there's not enough threat and dread here. Is in essence what you're saying? Yeah, it is. I think it, it's it's kind of. I mean, I don't want to say I would. <laughs> I don't want to see misery heaped upon a, a kid. But no, at the same I know. Time, I mean, the premise is kind of. You think, oh, it's going to be quite, you know, dark. But it, it's kind of. It's more like a horror for kids it's got that that period setting it's set in the the 70s and Mm. i suppose it tickles that that need for nostalgia in the same way as something like stranger things or 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 stephen king's it does but um i suppose setting it in the 70s it also gives everything a a kind of a gritty layer and Um, the newcomer kid who plays the main kidnapping I tell you what, and um, the, the the well the 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 main lead Mason Thames, he's I mm. suppose he's good enough in a sort of a a child actor sort of a way. But what works really really well is this relationship between him and his younger sister Gwen, who's played by Madeline McGraw. Okay, she, it, it's a really really believable relationship, and the younger sister character is a standout. She is far and away the best written character it's a great part and um madeline mcgraw is just remarkable she she walks away with the film okay and you know the kind of central conceit of this black phone that's disconnected that rings does that that doesn't achieve scariness like you'd hope for or creepiness occasionally um uh and uh, you know it's it's an original story and i'm i'm you know i'm happy that it's it's not a sequel or a me or a remake yeah i just think it kind of it doesn't really make enough of that premise if you like or it doesn't get it's not really dark enough if that makes sense absolutely no you've you've said the same thing three different ways three times so (laughs) i'll stop badgering for you i guess i was i guess i was more hopeful of this because of what i'd heard about it and Mm. as i say that the the main image of the guy in the mask with the top hat on and even the trailer was kind of creepy but look it is what it is as a great man i believe it was you once famously said not every child deserves a biscuit so what would you give the black phone star wise it's it's pretty good so i'm going to give it a three Okay, okay. So that is three for The Black Phone, which is in cinemas, this Friday, which is the 24th of June. Here's a quick clip. I know you're scared and you want to go home. I'll take you home soon. Sister, I got to be upstairs for a while. Something's come up. What? Never mind what. Someone's coming. I'll scream. If someone's upstairs, they'll hear me. With the door shut, no one can hear anything down here. I soundproofed it myself. So shout if you like, you won't bother anyone. If you try to touch me, I'll scratch your face. And whoever's coming will see and ask why. This face? Ah, yes. The face he was referring to is a very creepy face with kind of mask on it, as worn by Ethan Hawke in The Black Phone, which you heard a clip from there. And Mark gave it three. I didn't see it myself, but Mm. uh, that's okay. That's okay. (laughs) Now, something I did see is a documentary called Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest, all about a Danish arcade game player who wants to make a world record by playing a hundred hours, I believe it is of a particular game, which was getting rave reviews. uh, And, and I've, as I say, I've seen this, I'm scratching my head a bit, but uh, over to you, Mark. 
I am also scratching my head a bit. Yeah, it's a, there's a documentary about arcade gamers in uh, Copenhagen. And uh, Kim uh, Kubka, uh, also known as Kim Cannonarm, he's uh, a father and a grandfather and uh, a shoe-in for the, the annual Edward James Olmos lookalike competition. <laughs> he, 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 he holds the, the world record for playing a 1983 arcade game called Gyrus for 49 hours nonstop. And this documentary from Mads uh, Hedegaard's uh, he, he is about Kim's attempt to break his own record and play the game nonstop for a staggering 100 hours. Yes, yes. Now, yeah. here's the thing, right? Yeah. Like, the whole premise of that sounded great to me, right? A couple yeah. of caveats. Like, I was one of those arcade kids. Like, in the, mm. in the 80s, there was a, in Dublin on Bachelor's Walk, there were, what was that, the Piero Club or the, uh, the Piero Club where they had all those <laughs> video games or the hideout on South William Street. We yeah, used yeah. to spend Saturdays there. And even though I'm not really computer gamer anymore as a teenager i loved it so the setting of this because a lot of it's reminiscent of the 80s with pac-man and space invaders and gyrus i thought great and this idea of a guy who's going to do this uh, world record bid to play for 100 hours non-stop i thought was fascinating but mm. my take and we'll get to your take is that it fell completely flat it did um we have we've talked a lot about documentaries and the thing that we always say about docu a good documentary is that it presents you with a subject that you may not know much or mm. care about mm -hmm. and it draws you in and it makes you feel like it is the most important or fascinating thing in the world yes and, and i say that to you about sports and music doc well sports documentaries at times like, I, try this one even if you don't know the sports you might like it you know exactly yeah regardless of the subject if it's yeah. a good documentary you get drawn in and cannon arm is not one of those documentaries yeah um, my main issue with it is that i think attempting to play a video game non-stop for over four days is such a pointless endeavor <laughs> It is it is literally a waste of time and and Kim Cannonarm isn't raising money for charity or doing this for any benevolent reason. He's just doing it. And I I couldn't look at Gyrus for more than ten seconds without feeling queasy. It is yeah. it is ridiculously repetitive. It just it's the same thing every ten seconds over and over with no variation whatsoever. And I just don't get it. And nothing in this documentary convinced me to try and get it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you more or less. Now, the thing that bothered me about it mm. was someone wanting to play a video game for four days does seem kind of pointless, but yeah. maybe there was some reason, maybe there was some fascinating psychological desire to do this from his past. That's what mm. I kept waiting for. But yeah. instead we have this hour of pointless supposition about yeah. these guys hanging out in an arcade game in Denmark and we learn very little about them and we learn nothing about Kim. Like no, we're told no. he's a grandfather and a father yep. and, and that's it. And then after an hour of nothing, the last half an hour where he's trying to break the attempt held my interest mildly, to be honest. But, but I was so disappointed because, you know, I was, I was shaping up here for something that was going to be great, you know, and yeah. it was so not great. Running out to pee in a bush. Um, yeah. the, the, the problem, as you say, there's, there's, no, there's no even hint of a life outside of playing this arcade game. There's no mention of his family or his, or, you know, his extended um, network or anything like that. And the big problem, I think, with this is that he, he's not a particularly interesting character. He yeah. is incredibly uncommunicative. Uh, and monosyllabic, which is a, a real problem because he's the focus of the documentary. Yeah. Um, 
But what we do get is this extended network of, of friends and hangers-on that, that really look like a game of guess who. <laughs> Am I bald? Yes. Do I have a beard? Yes. These, these guys, are all, they're all very hyper-intelligent. Um, but, you know, they wouldn't have great people skills. I think one of them has a master's degree in on analyzing the work of Bach from a contrapuntal perspective. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. They're all like people of that type, you know? And, yeah. And I mean, his, his even though with his his pals that surround him, you know, at one point one of them they make reference to the fact that he's on the spectrum. But yeah. and I thought, oh, that's going to go somewhere because maybe this is saying something about the way we process the world. But again, it it, it didn't go there at all. Yeah, you could like I agree. There's that argument there where it's not about arcade games; it's about friendship. But I'm not I'm not buying that either. No, and, no, because it didn't sell it like that either. There wasn't no, enough friendship on display. There's not, no, it's just, and it's also peppered with these airy-fairy philosophical notions about mortality and everyone being particles floating around in the universe. But it's all just, it, it's, that's all just guff. It's, it's, it's a bit <laughs> like, you know, listening to a, a Brian Cox TED talk and watching somebody playing Space Invaders. Yeah. And the, 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 um, the, like this, the, this network of friends that he's got, they're, they're supposed to be there to help him in his, in his goal. But this support, it really, it just seemed to involve just standing around also playing video games and shouting and swearing when they lose. And yeah. it's, it's basically watching a bunch of guys playing video games in a shed in Copenhagen that <laughs> I would imagine smells of BO and resentment and loneliness. <laughs> You had me at shed. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's not good. And now often what happens in these situations is, you know, you, you've you really not liked someone, something, and, and you know, the rest of the world, yeah. including myself, have loved it. And you get this kind of lonely feeling. I make you feel intellectually lonely. But there's two of us in it because this is being adored by critics the world over, it seems. Yeah. And I, I actually had to check had I been sent the wrong film at one point because no, I just... I don't I just, think there'd be two movies like this. If you see one Danish yeah. arcade quest movie this this <laughs> month, make sure it's not this one. Uh, yeah. So look, what are you going to say for Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest? I, I, like, I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it a two because it's it's marginally more interesting than watching a guy playing a video game for a hundred hours. But there's not much in it, and really, who who cares? You know. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually going to give it one and a half because yeah. you know I salute the art of anyone making a documentary. So hats off. But uh, it, it it was pointless uh, and it kind was. of annoyed me by the end of it. Yeah. So anyway, that's a definitive thumbs down. And I'm giving a lower mark to the documentary Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest, which is in select cinemas. If you've nothing to do this weekend, by all means, and go see it. But I don't think, you know, people who are into games and all that gamers are going to enjoy this, you know, because it's just not a good documentary. I don't know. I, re I also don't think we're going to get in the poster with, with any of that. No, exactly. But that's not why we do it. So next week, it's Minions. Minions 2. Yeah. Okay. Well, roll up, roll up, folks. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, John. Mark Royal there talking to me about the week's new releases, which included The Black Phone, which he gave three stars to, and the bizarre documentary, Cannon Arm and the Arcade Quest, which he and I, well, he gave two stars. I gave one and a half to. I thought it was nonsense. <laughs> there you go. So that is it for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the show. It's very hot where I am recording this today. Really warm. Anyway, 
Maybe it's just me. Just remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5 p.m. on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6 p.m. right here on Newstalk. You can get in touch with me at any stage during the week. My Twitter handle is John underscore Fardy. Or you can email me, screentime at Newstalk.com. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Have a safe week ahead. And I'll talk to you next week. Take care.